This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 8, Episode 2. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. And today's episode, super excited. I'm, I'm here with Jacob Paulson, and we have a special guest with us who is Don West, National Trial Counsel from CCW Safe. And we'll bring him on momentarily for uh, a quick introduction from him. But uh, first, we do want to make sure we let you know of today's episode sponsors, which conveniently happens to be CCW Safe. Uh, ccwsafe.com is their website and where you can learn more about the services they provide. Uh, naturally, you'd think that we're a bit biased of CCW Safe's uh, program of services, uh, but you know, Jacob and I were actually members of CCW Safe and using it before they became a sponsor of the podcast. And uh, I'm thrilled to, to have Don here from CCW Safe with us today to talk about some really important legal matters and, and to put some things straight that I think. A lot of times get misconstrued uh, by folks in the concealed carry realm. Uh, I know I see a number of comments and discussions that occur online. You got to really vet your information you receive online because a lot of different things are said. But I'll tell you that CCW Safe not only has, in my opinion, the best coverage for legal defense out there in the industry, but also partly the reason why for that is they have some of the best experts on their team and Don West is one of those and uh, so we look forward to, to having this uh, discussion with him today and our other episode sponsor today is Guardian Nation which is our membership program for those of you that want to get trained and, and learn and also receive great quality products that support the concealed carry lifestyle so please consider checking out guardiannation.com to learn more and signing up today because uh, we know if you're here and you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're serious about this stuff. And Guardian Nation is the place where serious concealed carriers go. So anyway, thanks to our sponsors today. I'm trying to get through it as brief as I can because I know we have a lot to discuss here today. And Jacob hasn't even said a word yet. And we got to pardon him in advance. His audio is not going to be super awesome today due to some technical difficulties. But good to see you, Jacob. I'm excited. We got This is a good one. I've been looking forward to this one for... Well, we've been planning it for several months, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think we reached out to Don uh, about two months ago initially about this topic. The topic, by the way, is can it be used against me? And we're going to talk about a number of the things, uh, maybe some of the popular colloquialisms and different things that people often throw around. Like, well, you know, if you do this, that that could be used against you. Or, oh, don't worry about that. Or, uh Better to be, you know, judged by 12 than carried by six, stuff of that nature. So let's bring in here our special guest today, Don West of CCW Safe. Don, welcome, sir. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. Nice to see you guys. Absolutely. We appreciate you giving up your time here today. But, uh, why don't you, for those that may not be familiar with you, Don, tell a little bit about yourself, your background, and, 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 and I mean, how is it that you are National Trial Counsel of of you know the best legal coverage program out there. That's been a terrific relationship that I've had with CCW Safe over the last several years. However, my legal career goes back a lot longer than that. I've been practicing law since the early 1980s. I've been a criminal defense trial lawyer the whole time. 
in about 1987, actually, I was board certified in Florida as a criminal trial specialist. That's a, an additional designation you can have once you've uh, passed the bar and become a member. You can specialize, and then you have a recognized specialty. It requires some additional testing, recommendations by judges and lawyers, and, and that sort of thing. So that's a designation, and you are truly allowed to hold yourself out as an expert or specialist because you've taken the extra effort to, to get that. It requires you to have actually tried a certain number of serious felony cases before you're eligible for that. So I've been trying cases since the early 1980s, probably murder cases since the mid-1980s. I've tried death penalty cases throughout uh, the Southeast in federal court and in, uh, in state court. I've never been a prosecutor, although I know a few and claim some of them as friends even, but I've, I've never been a prosecutor who then later in one's life decided to become a criminal defense lawyer. I, um, I've been involved in a lot of jury trials over the years. My designation is as a criminal trial uh, board certified, not criminal appellate or other things. So that means I have spent my lifetime in the courtroom professionally. Not as much these days. I'm spending a lot of time with CCW Safe, interacting with members, helping manage some of the serious cases that their members are involved in. And I'm still taking cases from time to time. Over the last several years, I really haven't done much legal work other than self-defense related stuff. Um, but I've worked for the state government. I've worked for the federal government. I've spent decades in private practice. So I, I feel like I've seen that world from different angles uh, for a, a long, long time. I'm licensed in Florida and I'm also uh, licensed in Texas. So that's sort of the thumbnail sketch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you, you've been a part of, uh, well, as you mentioned, a lot of trials uh, and you know defense cases through the years. Um, you've also been a part of some high-profile ones as well. Uh, would you mind you know speaking to that a little bit? Some people may be familiar with some of that. Probably the well, certainly the highest-profile case that I was involved in was as co-counsel with Mark O'Mara in the George Zimmerman prosecution. George Zimmerman, as people know, and you're certainly going to know if you don't already. This is the 10th anniversary of the verdict in the case. My goodness, time has flown. But uh, George Zimmerman uh, shot and killed Trayvon Martin. George Zimmerman was prosecuted for second-degree murder. It was a very high-profile case. It was one of those that just caught the media's attention. It had all of the hot buttons that these gun cases sometimes have, even though there was nothing particularly extraordinary about the actual facts and circumstances of the incident. There was all this noise around it and uh, a lot of media attention. And it seems to me, you may have observed this in that case, but others as well, that the media wants to often sensationalize aspects of the case. They want to stir up controversy. They want to make it divisive. And as a result, it uh, gets a lot of attention, not necessarily deserved, but regrettably, that attention often means less accurate or complete reporting. So the general public often is exposed to some aspect of the case or perhaps the agenda that the media outlet wants to promote. 
So, and certainly the Zimmerman case had all of that. Uh, so because of Florida's liberal media in the courtroom rules, the whole thing was televised. Uh, 20, every day we were in court, every minute we were in court, it was on national television in some sense. So that was an interesting opportunity for people to see how the inside of a courtroom, uh, on the other hand, there was somewhat of a circus atmosphere, is even a spectacle from time to time. And, yeah. uh, but it was the most interesting and uh, challenging case that I've ever had. It was all consuming for a year, a year and a half. I really didn't do much of anything else. And, and Mark didn't either between the work that we had to do to prepare the case and the fending off of the misinformation that was out there. We really had our hands full. And that was a case where we had a lot of challenges with the prosecution team who we thought were bending the rules or even violating them from time to time by withholding evidence we should have had that would have been helpful by just making our lives difficult. And sometimes that happens. The, the case was politically charged. The prosecutor was specially appointed from outside the circuit where the case was being held. We didn't know each other. They were new, new people, and um, it just was contentious from start to finish. And some of the most interesting aspects of the case for, I think, the, those viewing and were some of those courtroom moments that were just unnecessarily ugly, but that's just how it goes sometimes because you're fighting. In this case, I, I think Mark and I were absolutely convinced the further we got into the case, the more convinced we were that uh, Zimmerman was being subjected to an unfair prosecution, that the prosecution was willing to prosecute a guy that they should have known. And clearly they were experienced enough that they would have known that they were not, there wasn't sufficient evidence to convict him. And yet they were willing not only to take their best run at it, they would have been more than willing to let him be convicted and spend the rest of his life in prison. And that, that's just not fair. The system isn't supposed to work that way, but the system did work the right way at the end on that case. So I, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that, even though I'm not sure I'd volunteer <laughs> at this point to do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, but I think right. that um, what, it, what it does, I think for us now in hindsight, is it gives us a lot of um, examples that people can sometimes relate to. Because it was a self-defense case, and it was one where uh, ultimately he he was innocent, and uh, despite that, the motive for the prosecution was as high as ever, and so it gave us some some opportunities to to learn some things. I think uh, in the in the community, I'm speaking broadly, uh, you know, not just for for those who who are trial uh, mm -hmm. lawyers. Let's let's point out one other uh, aspect of that case that I think plays well into this conversation, and that is it was a self-defense case, it was a high-profile case, but this was one of those kinds of cases that are very, very difficult, typically from the defense standpoint, because an armed defender shot and killed a person that was being portrayed and represented by the prosecution and the media as being unarmed. So here's a guy with a gun who shoots and kills somebody that didn't have a weapon. So that makes it harder to start with because I think the general public's view of how can that happen? 
You know, how can you claim self-defense and you're the guy with the gun? Sure, sure. So. Yeah, and we're going to come back and, and reference at least one element of that that trial in our conversation today that's on my mind. Uh, but I think, you know, Donna, your, your experience is really relevant here and very important. And, and I think that I can't think of anyone that I am aware of that would be more qualified to have this conversation today. Uh, we reached out to you originally because, I don't know, I was scrolling through some new Facebook thing or I was on some forum or maybe it was a comment on our site, but it was the straw that broke the camel's back in my case because I saw one more time the phrase being used by someone in our community to the effect of, can it be used against me? Or it can't be used against me? Or can such and such blank thing be used against me? And we hear this stuff all the time. And I think that uh, as an attorney who's experienced, it's, it's a very subjective, like simple thing to talk about. But as a community, it's almost, you know, I call it gross misinformation because we've created an environment where we've effectively trained concealed carriers and gun owners to ask the question, can blank be used against me or can it not be used against me? Like there's some black and white list of things are, that can or can't be mm-hmm. you know, used as evidence or used to, to, to create some sort of a narrative uh, about a, defend, uh, a defender. And uh, I wanna, I'm going to use some examples right now just for the audience who's listening. And we might come back and address some of these specifically um, later on in the show today. But, you know, we hear things like, well, if I have an aftermarket trigger, can that be used against me? If I have a Cerakote uh, paint job on my gun, can that be used against me? Uh, in fact, recently there was some drama uh, on a YouTube video that I won't get into details about, but the argument was made that maybe you shouldn't have a trauma kit, you know, med kit with you, because that, that could be used against you. Uh, you know, maybe the fact that you had a few drinks, uh, you know, that, that evening when you were watching the ball game before the person broke into your home and you had to defend yourself, maybe that could be used against you or maybe that can't be used. And so you hear, you, you get the idea. You know, if, if you're watching this or listening to this, you've probably heard this before. Maybe you're guilty of having asked this question or having stated it as a fact before, blank can be used against you or blank cannot be used against you in a court of law. And, and my understanding of, of the thing is such that I think that we're asking the wrong question. And so that's why, Don, I reached out to you because I feel like I think as a community, we're getting it all wrong. Like the, the premise is flawed to ask the question or to, or to propose it as a fact that way. So what, what are your initial thoughts when you hear me say those things? When, I, you know, when people in our community are saying, well, can blank be used against me or X, Y, Z thing cannot be used against you or can be used against you? What, how do you react to that? In the least satisfying way possible, <laughs> which is it depends. And there are circumstances when everything you've mentioned and a whole lot more, including most you could just make up, might. They might very well find their way into a courtroom depending on the specific circumstances. And more importantly, why, uh, we'll, we'll use the prosecutor, why would the prosecutor want to offer that evidence? Because they have the burden of proof. They have to convince the jury that the crime itself was committed. And then if self-defense is raised, they have to convince the jury that the defendant, the defender, did not act in self-defense. And the way they get there sometimes is by attacking individual aspects or elements of the affirmative defense of self-defense or attempting to undermine the credibility of someone or show a predisposition to violence. 
And some of those things that you're talking about with a creative, persuasive prosecutor might very well convince a judge to allow that evidence in on a specific aspect or theory of their prosecution. In order for evidence to be admitted, it has to be relevant. And by being relevant, it has to go to a material fact in the case. That's not very helpful because all relevant evidence is admissible unless for some reason it's not. And when you're talking about emotional things, whether is a trauma kit good or bad in a particular uh, context, is a firearm modification good or bad in a particular context, ultimately it's going to boil down to why is that evidence being offered? No doubt if it's being offered by the prosecutor, it's being offered since it doesn't directly relate to the elements of the crime or the evidence of proof, but rather goes to undermine credibility or to clarify some aspect of the proof. It's going to be sought after because it has an emotional appeal. They know there's some sort of emotional mileage they can get from it. And because it has an emotional impact, perhaps also a relevant effect, but it's because it's emotional, that means it's likely to be prejudicial. So when you have information like that, the first test, is it relevant? And you can make an argument that just about anything is relevant because it's a really low low standard. And basically anything is relevant if it tends to um, help answer the question of some fact at issue. Does it move the needle one way or another? And then the question becomes, if it's relevant, what kind of probative value? How important is it? Is it just a piece of evidence that maybe helps a little bit, but it's not critical or important particularly? What is its probative value or its real value to the issues at hand. And then, of course, what is the prejudicial effect on the case? Uh, you'll hear judges being asked to engage in what's called a 403 analysis. 403 is just typically the evidence code provision that governs this sort of thing. It's a, it's a balancing act that a judge will be required to do when someone asks the court to determine whether the, um, there's a couple of different ways to say it, but they're looking at the probative value of the evidence and they're looking at the prejudice. Whether the probative value of the evidence is substantially outweighed by the prejudice. So there can be relevant evidence, but the, ju the judge can exclude it because it's so prejudicial that it's just unfair, that it's misleading to the jury. Ultimately, it could be confusing to the jury. And then separate and apart from the prejudice part, it could be a waste of time. It could be just cumulative evidence. So there's an analysis that goes on, and then the judge ultimately decides, well, given all of the information and in the context in which it's being offered, it's either coming in or, or it's not. And sometimes uh, it's very powerful evidence from a, an emotional standpoint, that's excluded simply for that reason. It's too powerful. The prejudice caused by that information greatly outweighs any real value or relevance that it has. To yeah. Place. So if I'm if I'm trying to 
restate that and summarize it, would it be fair to say that effectively anything could be used against you if the prosecution is able to uh, get that admitted as evidence and, and whether or not they can or can't get that admitted as evidence comes down to a balance between relevancy to the fact and prejudice. Uh, and, and, you know, how is it, if it's, if it's extremely prejudiced, it better be highly relevant to be admissible um, and, and so forth. Is that kind of a rough summary? Yeah, I'll give you a, an example of that exactly. Let's say that it's a murder case of some sort. Well, in a murder case, there's going to be photographs of the deceased, of the, the victim of the case. The prosecutor has to prove that someone died at the hands at the criminal agency of someone else, and they have to prove who it was. And typically, the medical examiner will be asked to call to testify about the cause of death and other circumstances surrounding it that might be relevant, including things that might help reveal the circumstances of how it took place, maybe the distance uh, of, of the shots or the traje tra trajectory of the shots and that sort of thing. Well... So just the way murder cases go, there's going to have to be some photographs offered to, to help the prosecutor prove its case, to help the forensic pathologist testify. On the other hand, we know those gruesome type photographs are going to have a powerful emotional effect on the jury. So in every case I've seen, the prosecutor wants 50 photographs offered in evidence, and the defense lawyer wants none. And typically, the judge will settle on a handful, ones that illustrate the points that are being offered, but don't provide such piling on of just gruesome um, and horrifying images that the jury is going to be prejudiced unnecessarily by it. And every one of those pictures arguably are relevant because they show some aspect of the case, but they may be cumulative. They may have little value separate from the others that have already been introduced. So a judge is going to, to limit to a handful when otherwise there might be 50 or 100 of them being yeah. offered. D does that sort of illustrate what you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, where that balance game uh, exists. But I think, I think there's, yeah. there's a couple other key takeaways here, anecdotally. Um, and I know I'm, I'm like dominating the microphone, Riley. I'm sorry. I'm so excited about this conversation. The, the first, I think, like kind of, I, I'm enjoying it. So <laughs> the first thing I think is is is, uh, is 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 interesting. I guess is that first, what this suggests is that no evidence is going to be presented in trial that the defense didn't know was coming. That's the first kind of key takeaway. So if if blank whatever the thing is that you're worried about uh, is used against you, your your legal team should at least know it's coming because it's been brought in as evidence, it's been accepted, it's been determined that it's admissible, whatever. So, you know, it's, it's part of the discovery. Everyone knows that that's admissible. So that's the first thought. Second is most of these things that I, I hear in our community being discussed as can or can't be used against you are generally um, on the surface, like g generically without other context, frivolous, pretty frivolous. Um, you know, the Cerakote job on the gun, the aftermarket sites, the trigger, the, you know, this, these examples I already gave, they, they're generically frivolous. But um, the question is, well, in, in your particular, could you be, you know, you could be in a, in a, in a 
a fact pattern, a situation where that particular thing is highly relevant. Um, that certainly could be the case. Uh, uh, right, Don? I mean, is that fair? It, it is fair because anything that deviates from what the prosecutor would characterize as the norm is going to be viewed as an opportunity to exploit it in favor of, of their case. So if the gun has been seriously modified and the trigger pull is what would a light range be a couple of pounds as opposed to a factory set of what five or six or seven or what have you, there's a modification there that the prosecutor may very well claim you've modified this gun to make it easier to kill somebody. You have a, it has a hair trigger. It's inherently more dangerous. Keeping in mind that a jury is likely to be largely ignorant of how guns actually work, what training actually is. And the prosecutor, by characterizing a hair trigger, for example, is painting an image, a scary image to a jury that may very well just go for it. And likewise, if you have um, bumper stickers or stickers or things out there that are giving a message that the prosecutor might be able to exploit as saying you have a particular mindset, even though there's absolutely no evidence that you had whatever mindset they thought they could show at the time of the incident, there may very well be an opportunity to try to shift the focus away from the attack of the person that you had to defend against to what your mindset was, that you were looking for a fight. There's a social media post or there's some indication that you couldn't wait to try out your new hair trigger gun if you had the chance sort of stuff. And so I think that's why typically you recommend against modifications that could be exploited that way unless you have a real good reason for it and can explain it. And frankly, it's entirely likely that the prosecutor will be unfamiliar with the gun, unfamiliar maybe with even how um, firearms operate uh, specifically, double action and single action and um, external safeties and grip safeties. All, they may not understand how all that works and try to appeal to a jury at a very low level uh, and make it emotional. If you can make the case emotional, even though the judge will tell the jury, don't, don't sympathize, don't hate, don't make a decision based upon emotion. The fact of the matter is, if you can get a, an emotional hold on the jury, they're going to like you better than the person that you've painted negatively. That's just kind of a fact of the way the, the process works. So it, in some ways, I guess what I'm saying it, it can be risky. I mean, there may be complete valid explanations for stuff. Uh, you may wind up having to call an expert, frankly, to explain why what the prosecutor is making a big deal out of is nothing. In fact, it may actually be more safer that way. But just be prepared to have to have to do yeah, that. And that's exactly where I wanted to have you go next on, right? Yeah. Because maybe the correct question is not, can blank thing be used against me? Maybe the correct question is, um, if blank thing is used against me, uh, how how damaging is that going to be, or how difficult is it for my defense team to um, mitigate that damage? Is, I mean, is that a fair kind of way of thinking through this? Yeah, I think that's a fair way of looking at it. And of course, anything that you can anticipate, 
you have a better chance of being able to address or rebut or exclude pretrial. And there's a procedural way to do that in a case. Typically, it's, it goes by a motion in limine, a Latin term for something, meaning to limit or exclude evidence. And that is, if you have one of these hot button issues that isn't particularly probative of the issues, but nonetheless has a risk of a high prejudicial effect, and one party or the other can file these motions, you raise the issue by a pleading prior to the trial outside the presence of the jury. There's probably not even a jury selected at that point. And you can put on the evidence. You can even call experts to address these issues. And then at the end of that, the judge will decide, one, is it relevant? And then, like we were talking about before, that 403 balancing test, if it is relevant, is it admissible um, or is it the probative value so substantially outweighed by the prejudice? Or is there a high risk of misleading the jury or confusing the issues or just beating a dead horse? Is it just going to waste too much time to do it? And then you can begin to pare that stuff down and know even before the trial starts, whether you have to address it and mitigate it in front of the jury or whether that's that aspect is done and, and over with. Stuff comes out all the time though, that you don't expect. Uh, and the way that seems to happen is if a witness says something that's unexpected and the the term is open the door, you may have heard that in the context of a case, uh, a witness will say something that they probably shouldn't have. They may even have been instructed not to, but then because of what they say, they now open the door and make evidence that might even have been excluded by the judge prior to the trial, now relevant and now admissible uh, to respond to what the person did. Can you give us an example, Don, of, of um, and you don't need to mention the trial, or it doesn't, I don't know that it's relevant, but give us an example of, of, of something you've seen that you were able to get excluded that you know, maybe in this kind of category of stuff we're talking about, and maybe an example of something that you were not able to get excluded that you had to mitigate against. Okay, sure. Keep in mind that evidence sought to be excluded may be brought by the prosecutor. They want to keep defense evidence out just as much as the defense may want to keep prosecution evidence out. So it goes both ways. And the Zimmerman case is a good example because there was so much of that. There must have been 10 motions in limine by the state and by the defense addressing certain aspects of the case, asking the judge to rule on it pre-trial so we would know what was admissible and, and what, what wasn't. One of the real significant evidentiary issues in the Zimmerman case was that as Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman were sort of fighting and grappling and Trayvon Martin had knocked uh, Zimmerman to the ground and had straddled him and was um, a witness described beating him kind of MMA style. One of the neighbors called 911 and was on the phone with uh, the police dispatch when in the background, you could clearly hear an individual yelling for help. And this 
took 30 seconds, 40 seconds, and you could hear person help or help me several times in the background. There were no specific witnesses at that point. So the prosecution hired a couple of experts who then analyzed that tape and were offered by the prosecutor to come in and testify and say, we analyzed the tape, we're expert witnesses, we've done this for all these many years as professional experts, and it's our opinion that the person screaming for help was George Zimmerman. Well, imagine how that would have affected a jury to hear the person, I'm I, I got that backwards, that the person screaming for help was Trayvon Martin, obviously. We knew it was George Zimmerman. There was no doubt in our mind that it was George Zimmerman. It fit everything, including what George Zimmerman told the police right after. But what if an expert comes in and says, no, that was Trayvon Martin screaming for help. And then there's a gunshot. And then all of a sudden, there's nobody screaming anymore. Well, that's very, very powerful evidence for the prosecutor. That could get them a conviction on its own. That could get them a conviction, notwithstanding any of the other evidence. And it was junk science. It was not credible evidence. The experts were effectively, uh, I thought, challenged. We had a long pretrial hearing that lasted several days. The Experts were not held in great esteem in their own community. It was very speculative. We caught one of them kind of tampering with the evidence along the way. And we had experts that were not going to say, yes, that was George Zimmerman screaming for help because they said you can't make that determination with the state of the science and the quality of the evidence. We don't think it's a valid opinion to reach because of where the science is, but also because uh, of the quality of the stuff. So we tried to exclude that. And we had this long extensive hearing. And ultimately, the judge said, yes, we're not going to offer that expert testimony. So no experts testified that it was Trayvon Martin screaming or that it was George Zimmerman screaming. And that was an issue that was kept, all of that evidence was kept away from the jury. It would have been confusing. It would have been misleading. It would have been extremely prejudicial. And I think it would not have been based on real science. Now, on the other hand, the judge also did agree that lay people that were familiar with their voices would be allowed to offer an opinion as to whose voice was on the recording. So um, our experts were were terrific, NSA and uh, college professors, and we had a forensic scientist from Europe, all basically saying that the prosecutor's experts could not form the opinion that they claimed they had. So that was an, that's an example of highly prejudicial, marginally, well, it, you can't say it's not probative, um, it's relevant, but at the same time, there's this notion that all the judge is supposed to do is decide whether it's relevant and then let the jury decide how much weight to give it, how probative it truly is. Well, if you let in evidence, even if it's relevant, but it's so highly prejudicial, then you run the risk of uh, simply not having a fair trial because the jury is going to be overwhelmed by the power of something that really shouldn't have very much probative value because it's unreliable. Uh, it's kind yeah, of a long-winded yeah, way of saying, wow. You know, you know. I, I'm just going to jump in real quick, Jacob. I, I, I was just thinking as you've been explaining this part of that trial, Don, um, and how that was 
you know, not admissible as evidence as far as these expert uh, uh, witnesses testifying as to whose voice that was. Uh, but you certainly saw in the media how that was, I mean, <laughs> that was a huge, huge part of the of the media's campaign, if you will, uh, in the public, you know, court of opinion of, you know, oh, we think this may have been Trayvon asking, you know, calling for help or vice versa. And I remember hearing about that day in and day out for, you know, months. And uh, it's just, it's just mm-hmm. interesting hearing these different perspectives of, of these cases. I certainly, I followed along with the trial, but uh, was not nearly as experienced myself or knowledgeable uh, then as I am now. And uh, like you said, it's been 10 years and I kind of forgotten uh, <laughs> some of these things too. Uh, so it's uh, interesting kind of just like I said, listening to you and then putting in the context of, well, what did I understand as a third party mm-hmm. observer? And certainly what I understood was a lot of what the media portrayed. So we're preparing the case for trial and the judge doesn't rule on whether this expert testimony is admissible or not until the Saturday before the Monday oh, trial. Geez. We've already been picking a jury for two weeks, and we still don't know if that evidence is coming in. Mm. Imagine how you have to retool everything if it comes in and how it changes how you're going to present the case if it doesn't. And I'm convinced the judge made the right decision, took forever to get there, and she clearly made the right decision. But that totally changed how the case would be tried. Mm. And, And she was smart enough to know it would and that the evidence wasn't reliable enough Uh, to take that risk, frankly. I I think an appellate court would have likely reversed a conviction, but I think that prosecutors' chances of getting a conviction were highly increased, and they were more than willing to take a shot at it, right? They they were offering the experts. The experts, I I thought, had been impeached, but um, they were willing to go for it. You know, I was just thinking how you know, just thinking about the two two sides of a prosecution and a defense uh, team and how, you know, where the prosecution has a burden of proof they have to overcome. I mean, of course, I mean, it, it's in their best interest as far as winning a case to like, I got to, I might as well because I got, I have this burden I have to get over. So everything I can push towards that end goal is, is worthwhile. They're incentivized to propose any, yeah. you know, helpful fact or evidence at all. Yeah. So th- there's another aspect of the Zimmerman Martin case that connects to this, where we asked for evidence to be admitted that the prosecutor had tried to exclude. It was sort of the other way around this time, and that was. At autopsy, the toxicology screen on Trayvon Martin's blood showed a level of um, THC, of marijuana use. And we consulted with an expert who said that there is enough of the active ingredient, the THC, that it could have affected his behavior. He couldn't say specifically how it would have affected his behavior, but he knew that there was enough in the system that it could have affected his behavior. Now, his how it affected his behavior might be relevant or it might not. That's sort of for how that fits into the larger context of the case. I think if you're under the influence of an intoxicant of some kind and it affects your judgment, 
then it's going to affect your behavior. It may obviously then affect how you respond and how you perceive things. And that certainly could impact how someone who's interacting with you uh, sees you and what cues they take, especially if your cues, if you're presenting yourself in a way that's uh, the effect of being under the influence of something. So we asked the judge to allow us to introduce that evidence. The prosecutor raised a stink about it. We had a long hearing and ultimately the judge agreed that we would be allowed to offer that evidence in our case through our forensic pathologist that we had hired. It was a, a true world expert, a fellow named Vince DeMaio, who is the um, bullet wound or the gunshot expert in the world was at that point. But he also could speak to this. So we got the right to do that. And then it became pretty clear once we had the right to do that, that the prosecution was going to rebut that by taking quite a different tack. They weren't going to offer an expert to say, no, there wasn't enough THC in his system to affect his behavior. They had to concede that or they weren't really willing to challenge it. They took an interesting approach and it became pretty clear to us their response was going to be, hey, everybody knows THC makes you chill, right? So he had THC, but sure, he would have been calm. He would have been hungry. He would have been mellow. Yeah. So they were going to try by appealing to the jury with an uninformed uh, opinion, frankly. They were just going to use that stereotype and try to convince the jury that, in fact, not only did it not make him aggressive, it would have made him less aggressive. Now, the less the less aggressive he is, the less credible George Zimmerman's story is about being attacked. So that was going to kind of a backdoor way. And once that became pretty clear to us, that was the, we didn't want to fight that fight. I think they were wrong and we could have had expert testimony, just the opposite, but we just didn't go there. It just wasn't worth um, creating a diversion or a, a secondary issue for the jury. So when it came our turn, to offer that evidence, we chose not to. So we had the right, we chose not to. And that was a strategy that actually developed during the trial itself. So that that's the, the idea of you never know how something might be relevant or might not, and whether or not it's in your best interest to offer it, even if you can, as the case unfolds. And there were, there were frivolous things in that case too, Don. I, uh, I'm going to point out a specific example because I think it would I think it was frivolous, but, but the prosecutor made a bit of a, you know, hop to do or whatever about uh, George's carrying with the round in the chamber of the gun, something that anyone listening to this show would say, well, yeah, that's what you do. That's like an industry standard best practice. Um, but that came up in trial. So, so I think, I guess what I would love to, to kind of keep this continuation of, you, you've mentioned expert witnesses a few times, um, but, you know, that and, and what other things maybe are, are done uh, to kind of you know, reduce the damage that some of these things, that you know, some of this evidence might, uh, you know, might introduce? You have to, of course, evaluate what you think the impact is going to be on it. And sometimes you may say, that's stupid. He's not going to get or she's not going to get the response from the jury that they think they are because they're smarter than that. 
Um, in the Stephen Maddox case, the prosecutor tried to show that uh, that's a case for those listening on CC, that's featured on CCW Safe. Uh, Stephen was prosecuted for first degree murder in North Carolina a few years ago and was acquitted within a couple he, of hours. We interviewed Steve on Shame the show, John. So if anyone's mm-hmm. looking for that, you can go back and find it in our in our archive as well. Continue. Yeah, I'll see if I can dig which episode that was. I think that was even a two part episode we did with him. If I recall. So in this case, the prosecutor is looking for anything to try to push the jury in favor that this was a murder. This wasn't self-defense. This was a planned murder and went so far as to suggest that the license plate on his motorcycle, the vanity plate that he had, was admissible evidence in support of premeditation. Even though he'd had it for several years, his license plate spelled red rum. And if you, and of course, backwards, right? That is murder. So, and, and his lawyers, and, and I was there for all of that, just don't mess with that. That's silly. That's, that shows how desperate the prosecutor is if they're going to go there, that they don't have real credible, believable evidence. evidence. So that's the first assessment is, do you care if they go there? Secondly, what's the impact going to be? And is it going to be something that, the jury may not be able to sort out on their own. If you think they can't, then you have to offer expert testimony or someone to straighten it out. And the round in the chamber versus not a round in the chamber is a very good aspect of that. That's when prosecutors say he was carrying a semi-automatic firearm, as if that's a big deal. There was a round in the chamber, as if that's a big deal. It was ready to fire as if that's a big deal. So what we wound up doing essentially is with the police officers and anybody that we could find, we knew carried in that way, just said, oh, do you carry around in the chamber? By the time you get half a dozen of those, the jury catches on. And we didn't have to call an expert. We had court bailiffs and half a dozen police officers that would scoff at you if you suggested they should carry uh, an unloaded firearm on duty. So that kind of just fizzled. However, if we hadn't caught on and figured out what to do with it, that may very well have had a significantly negative effect on the jury that Zimmerman was being reckless, being trigger happy, or what have you. We also then emphasized on that point that Zimmerman himself had a friend who was an air marshal. And he's the guy that took him to the range and taught him how to shoot and taught him firearm safety and that sort of thing. So we bolstered George's credibility by the people that he associated with, that he associated with a credible, you know, police officer, law enforcement officer. But it was probably two hours of the trial that we shouldn't have had to have dealt with simply because, uh, you know, that it was a, you know, a, a chasing a rabbit that we never should have. Sure, to. sure. But great examples, Don. Man, this is this is gold. If you're listening to this right now and you're not, your, your mind's not as blown open as mine. Well, I guess I'm I guess I'm an idiot. But but I'm loving this. This is this is great content. I love the examples you're giving. It really illustrates the point. I, I want to transition a little bit. Um, with having said all that's been said here and understanding you know the reality of of this this topic, I guess. Um, I want to talk about some of the specific things that come up all the time in the gun community, knowing that, that you know, Don, we're not asking you to say, to tell us if this can or can't be used, because we all have agreed now that we understand that anything can be proposed to be used, and it goes through a process, and 
and we understand what that process looks mm-hmm. like. And we now also understand um, maybe what some of the strategies are and, uh, as far as determining what the potential impact of that is going to be and how to, how, how to mitigate that damage, uh, or reduce that damage as, as, as a defense. Um, so with, with all that context in mind, and that almost like a disclaimer at this point, I would love to hear your opinion on some specific things as to, you know, how big of a deal you think these things could be or how challenging them might be to overcome without any context or specific, uh, you know, case here or fact. Um, I thought we'd just throw some of these things at you and get your initial kind of gut feeling. (laughs) Yeah. And and part of it's going to just be, how do I react (laughs) when I hear it? Am I going to say, wow, you know, that that's something, if it came in, I would have to yeah, deal with. Right. Sure. You'd be like, ah, oh, crap. Or you would you be like, really? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. So let's uh, run some of these off. Riley, I know you got some on your mind. I got a few on my mind. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll kick off the first one because it's it's recent and it's relevant to me. Uh, is that we, this came up in a recent uh, YouTube content, but, but some, you know, the, the argument was made that the presence uh, on the defender of having medical supplies, you know, tourniquets and trauma gear to deal with gunshot wounds, you know, that, that could be damaging. You know, what's your initial thought on that one? I don't get that. No, I, I think, I don't think that it would be. In fact, just the opposite. I think it would show someone who is responsible, knows, knows how serious and how life threatening and how life taking a firearm can be. Anybody that is training to use a gun when they are required to do it to save their own lives knows there could be damage as a result of it. They could be injured if they're in a life-threatening engagement of some sort. And the other person, and that's the first fight, right? You, You have to win the first fight to face the second fight, which is the courtroom battle. But you have to win the first fight. And that's akin in my mind to um, should you render aid to someone that just tried to kill you that you shot. And a lot of people emotionally wouldn't want to, couldn't, can't imagine why they would be willing to help save that sorry SOB that just tried to kill them. On the other hand, I've also heard prosecutors make public statements where someone's effort after the shooting to help the person, to help render aid, was critical in the decision not to charge them. So I think if you're going to carry a gun and you carry a trauma kit with you, you're doing yourself a favor. But you have to effectively explain that. You can't let the prosecutor get away with distorting it and turning a real plus that's reflective of training and responsibility into some sort of of negative, trigger-happy negative. Yeah, excellent re- reply on that. I think there was a lot of interesting angles that they, they took in that uh, discussion on that video, including you know how well if if you have a trauma kit with you and you didn't use it to provide aid, that could also be used against you. Your take on that angle, Don? Well, does that mean that you knew or had reason to think that if you used it? or if you did something to render aid that it likely would have made a difference. And I think that's a pretty good argument if you're trying to show, you know, what the prosecutor wants to do is 
is take the shooting out of the response to a threat to someone that was looking for trouble, that was uh, provoking or being the initial aggressor, to take it out of the self-defense context. And that's why you have to be careful what you do um, weeks, months, years before the incident. And you have to be careful what you do um, immediately after the incident, I think so close in time as to whether or not you render aid. It's always my recommendation that you do if you can. If you don't, will it be held against you? There'll be an attempt, I think. Will it be successful? That's going to be case by case specifics. It may be very clear that there was absolutely nothing you could have done, or the circumstances were such that you really couldn't safely do it. That's a, a big thing too. Are you able to safely? Uh, so that's that's too complicated. That's too yeah. layered, I think. To- There's a lot of nuance there. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Absolutely. Um, we have gun modifications have come up a couple times in our conversation, Don. So um, I think common gun modifications would be uh, trigger sites and I'll just say cosmetic stuff, um, you know, paint jobs or insignia or things like that. What are your thoughts about, you know, the potential damage on some of those things? Well, I think you're probably safe if you carry something, including the, uh, the type of firearm equipped in the same similar way and the ammo that uh, police carry. That's kind of the standard, isn't it, for the community? And depending on how far you deviate from that, will probably be looked at as to whether it's something that reflects one of those other attitudes. Why would you do that? So that would be my question to you. Why would you change the sites or what would you do with the sites? I don't see that as a potential issue, frankly, but I'm just curious. Um, Could you do something with the sites that would make it somehow less responsible or more rec- I, I don't yeah, get that yeah point. presuming that the yeah. purpose of uh, you know the change in sites was an upgrade to be able to be more accurate uh, I, yeah yeah that that to me is not anything that grabs me uh, trigger pull I don't know I guess that might depend on the actual context of the shooting itself uh, you certainly don't want to pull the trigger accidentally do you as a result of a reflex or something like that, if the prosecutor could exploit that, they would. They, they would say that you you made a gun, as I used before, the, the hair trigger idea. And I, you'd have to, that would be something I would say you'd have to explain because I think that's something that the, uh, the jury may have questions about being relatively uninformed. Now, Part of that is how good are you at jury selection if you're a lawyer? How well can you pick the people or actually you don't pick them, you just get to get rid of the ones that you don't want. And so does the prosecutor. But how good are you at at getting jurors that don't have these preconceived ideas about any of the issues in your case? So again, that's one of those things you'd have to be aware of and prepared to address. The other cosmetic stuff, I think that just depends on if it's sending a message. Do I care if it's camo or black or chrome or that or pink? I don't. But if it's got a motto on it or or something that looks and sounds really aggressive, then I think you have to explain that too. And that's going to be harder to explain. If you're 
accused of being the initial aggressor. Now, the, the prosecutor can, you know, can tank a self-defense case by, by being able to establish any one aspect of the claim of self-defense isn't um, by proving beyond a reasonable doubt any one aspect of the self-defense case. So if you were the initial aggressor, if they can show that you were the initial aggressor, your self-defense claim is, is off the table. And, and other as well. So if they can show that the threat you had wasn't life-threatening and you used deadly force in response, your self-defense claim goes down the toilet. So they're going to focus on any aspect of that and then exploit the evidence that's available to try to gird their position that uh, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. Well, what about... Uh post-shooting or post-incident uh, actions that an individual might take. Uh, for instance, I know I've seen it come up in a couple of cases uh, that to my the best of my knowledge went both directions, both in terms of good for the perp- uh, or purported uh, uh, self-defense you know, individual or, or against them. And by that, I mean the type of situation where maybe a person engages in uh, defending themselves, but perhaps out of a, f- a fear of a continued danger, then leaves the scene of the incident. Uh, w- what sorts of, uh, you know, input do you have to, and that's just one example, but, you know, post-incident uh, actions that might be used against or, or perhaps help you. There's this aspect of, of law that prosecutors like to point to based upon the behavior of the accused, sometimes based upon the statements they make or they don't make, but the general behavior of the accused is going to be focused and they're going to characterize what you just talked about, leaving the scene as consciousness of guilt. So if you are involved in a serious lethal self-defense or shots fired or injuries and you leave the scene, not because you have to get to someplace safe. In fact, I was watching a, a trial on uh, the internet the other day where the guy left the scene because he didn't have cell service and had to travel a couple of miles to where he could phone it in for example. Mm. If you just get out of there to avoid being found at the scene, that's pretty powerful evidence of consciousness of guilt. Certainly the prosecutor is going to say, of course, they fled because they were guilty and they knew they were guilty. Otherwise, they would stay there and tell the police what happened. Now, the prosecutor can't get away with saying they would tell the police what happened, but they would, because that would be a comment on the Fifth Amendment, right? And But they're going to make it pretty clear that if you flee, uh, that that's because you knew that you were guilty. So I would recommend against that. You have to be safe, but you should certainly be the person who calls the police or has someone call the police first and foremost, because it's the right thing to do in that situation to get aid for the person that's been shot, but also to stake your claim. It's self-defense. Self-defense is an affirmative defense, and you want to be the person that gets that out there first, which is why we recommend that 
if you have an opportunity to say that I was attacked, I had to defend myself, even if you say nothing else, you've at least got it on the table. And if you say after that, I'll be glad to cooperate fully. I just need a chance to calm down and to consult with my lawyer, but get it out there so the police know that it's a self-defense issue. What about uh, another common one, Don, is just the idea of training. In fact, I think sometimes people use this as an excuse to not obtain education and training, but this idea of, well, my training might get used against me. Same sort of analysis. Uh, What kind of training is it? Um, How would it be used against you? Would the argument be, this is a guy who has been taught and has sought out training to be a killer? Or is this the kind of person who has sought out training to become a responsible um, gun owner? I would think that the latter is the training that you want to have. And that's the training I think that is relevant and will be valuable to the jury because that helps establish that you are a responsible gun owner, that you know the boundaries, that you take the steps to be uh, more proficient, which means less reckless, more capable, which means less impulsive. And frankly, I think that if you have training that allows you to explain to the jury why you did certain things and why you didn't do certain things when you did those things because of the training, that you become a much more credible witness. And and frankly, in most self-defense cases, the uh, defender has to be a witness in some form or another. Maybe there's a third party that can lay it out, but as a criminal defense lawyer, I assume that my client has to take the stand in a self-defense case. And if I can put them on the stand as a responsible gun owner who has sought out training, who stays familiar with his firearm and with uh, trends in training, then I think I've got someone that the jury will take seriously. And that's more important to me than how the prosecutor might characterize someone who's, who's out there getting training. And I think it's important to keep track of that, to be able to speak to it. And one other thing that that may go unsaid or not said so often is, of course, in my mind, the more training that you have, especially for self-defense encounters, maybe the less likely you will be to actually use your firearm because you may very well know there's other less lethal steps and you may not react. You may not panic. You may feel more capable and competent to deal with the threat before resorting to the gun. And I see that so often in the work I do with CCW Safe, especially, is people that, um, I wouldn't call it panic, but they, they react too quickly. They go to the gun too quickly. And of course, it's sort of like Goldilocks, right? It, has, it, it can't be too soon or too late. It has to be just right. And uh, obviously, the the best self-defense is the one that you don't have to defend because you've been able to avoid it or de-escalate it or something. So yeah. There's a value there in training, I think, is, yeah. is invaluable. Yeah. It, yeah, that's a really good I, – I love that aspect of it. I love what you said. And, and Riley's got something on the tip of his tongue. I'm going to jump in anyway because <laughs> you mentioned something else <laughs> that I want you to talk about more because it's another one I've heard many times. Uh, I have right here in my pocket – 
some pepper spray, okay, some palm pepper spray. And I've heard people say before they don't carry less lethal tools like pepper spray because that could be used against them, you know, sort of, a, well, why didn't you use that? Why did you go to the gun kind of thing? So would you like to have a client that had pepper spray on them even if they went to the gun? I will take that all day long. In fact, I would much rather have a client that used pepper spray too soon than went to the gun too soon, even if they didn't fire the gun. Uh, pepper spray is almost always considered uh, non-lethal, and you may have some legal jeopardy, and you may have to do some explaining, but you're not going to have this the kind of legal jeopardy that you have if you're charged with brandishing or aggravated assault or uh, attempted murder or something if, if you fire it. I have to tell you a story. This is a case that I had some contact with where uh, uh, the fellow was being harassed by an individual he didn't know in a common area of the community that he lived in. And he was sort of charging him and um, backing off and just mouthing off and that sort of thing. And he got so close to him that he displayed his firearm. He felt that there was really no other recourse at that point. And the guy backed off and he holstered his firearm, but then he kept at it again, although from a greater distance. And finally he began to approach him again. And as he got closer, but not so close as he had before, he went to his uh, OC spray and, and used it. So he had the, the, Com he had the, the presence of mind to be able to mind to be able to evaluate what was going on, know that he didn't have to go to the gun then. He had another option. Even if he deployed it, he was better off than pointing a gun at this guy under those exact circumstances. And that's in fact what happened. He he sprayed the guy, the guy backed off, the police came, the police momentarily detained the the, the fellow with the gun took his gun into evidence, no prosecution, and within about a month, the gun was returned. Hmm. I just thought that was an exceptional illustration of how things are so dynamic, but how when you have options, you, um, you aren't limited to just the gun or no gun. And it might, you know, might be the thing that really saves you mm -hmm. from the prosecution. Yeah. Love it. Thanks, Tom. That was I, I love that example. That's fantastic. And actually, Jacob, uh, the thing that was at the tip of my tongue was exactly what you just asked about. So <laughs> you beat me to the punch. Well, I think, I think that also goes back to the training, right? That person had to have understood, right, at what distance is pepper spray effective, um, at how, how quickly can this person close the distance on me so that I know at what point the, the firearm is the appropriate tool, right? That person had a certain amount of knowledge that can only come through training and education as well, in addition to the presence of mind to make decisions and to understand, uh, you know, in advance to have prepared to have multiple tools and options. So it's a, it's a very well-rounded example. Yeah. 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 Agreed. We're coming up close to the end of the time here. Uh, so I'll, before Riley does it, says anything else, I just wanted to say, thank you, Don. You've been so patient with our <laughs> questions. My hope, and I think we've very much so accomplished this, but my hope was that someone who's watching this or listening to this, is going to understand at a deeper level this idea of, well, can this be used against me? Can this not be used against me? Like really understanding the legal process and, and, and asking the right question uh, when you're making the decisions, right? 
Do I want to document my training or not? Do I want to carry pepper spray or not? Do I want to get a different trigger or not? Do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? Uh, I would hope that after listening to this, that a person would, would be better informed to make those decisions because you understand, well, there's potential risk in any of these decisions, uh, but there's also potential gain. And so being able to weigh those things and, and understand that you don't know the gunfight you're going to be in, you don't know the context of, of the situation and, and what may be highly relevant, what's not going to be highly relevant, but maybe you can understand what the potential risks are uh, and, and, and also understand the job that you're hiring an attorney to do on your behalf. Like what, what is, mm-hmm. this is their job, right? Is to manage these things uh, on your behalf. So I'm just very grateful, uh, Don, for, for the conversation and for your uh, expertise you've shared so graciously, as well as the fantastic examples that you've provided. Yeah, my pleasure. I really enjoyed this one. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and likewise, uh, yeah, we, we've we kind of passed the, exceeded the hour mark here. So uh, it is that time to kind of wrap things up. And you've been absolutely incredibly gracious with uh, your time and expertise. And uh, it's given a lot of, you know, given us a lot of food to, for thought, I would say. And hopefully it's helpful to our podcast listeners and viewers out there. Um, folks, you know, if there's something that uh, we didn't cover in this episode today and you wish that we had uh, any questions, anything like that, feel free to let us know. You can always contact us through our social media or by emailing us at podcast at concealedcarry.com. And certainly, especially if it's uh, relevant to this topic here today or anything that, uh, uh, you know, that we feel like Don would be the right guy for the answer. Uh, you know, perhaps we can have him back on at a future time as well and address some of those questions. Uh, Don, again, thank you very, very much. Um, very informative, very, very good episode here today. And uh, we, of course, wish you the best as always. And, and we always look forward to, see, you know, opportunities to, to rub shoulders with you. Thank you. Thank you. Various events. And, yeah. Next time. Thanks. Well, very good. Um, well, I guess we'll let everybody go and wish everyone uh, the best from us here at the Concealed Carry Podcast. Uh, be safe out there and be prudent in your decisions. And I think I would say that one of those prudent decisions ought to be making sure that you have excellent coverage in the event you need to use it. Uh, many, you know, these stories that we've discussed here today that uh, Don has mentioned, including the Stephen Maddox ones, one which would have either were beneficial or benefited by or would have been benefited by having something like CCW safe membership. Uh, so please uh, support our sponsors uh, that support us and make what we do here possible. And of course they're on a mission to, to, you know, protect good people uh, like those of you listening and viewing here today. And, and so uh, head on over to ccwsafe.com. What I failed to mention earlier in the episode is you can use the, the code CC podcast to save 10% off membership. And also uh, one of the reasons for Guardian Nation being our secondary sponsor of today's episode is Guardian Nation members will save even more. In fact, they'll save 20% off a, uh, off a CCW safe membership plan. Uh, and that, that's true across the board, whether you go for the ultimate plan, which is a coverage that Jacob and I have, or if you go for uh, one of the lower tiered plans like the Defender or Protector plans, which are also very, very good plans. Uh, but certainly you want to check all those out, compare their various benefits and make the best decision for you. But please use CC podcast to save 10% or join Guardian Nation today and save 20% off of your CCW safe membership or renewal. And you can go to guardiannation.com to learn more about joining the nation. 
So until next time, folks, we remind you to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Mm-hmm.